Before we get started, I need to thank two new Patreon patrons. Thank you, Philip Paroyan and Kevin McCandless, for becoming patrons of the original cast and supporting the art that you love. You have both now gained access to our bonus monthly podcast, The Original Cast of the Movies, here in 2023, which, as regular listeners know, is the year of Barbara. We are going through all of Barbara Streisand's motion pictures that we haven't covered on the original cast of the movies, except for the one where she drives in a car with Seth Rogen, because I don't want to watch that one. March's film was The Prince of Tides. April's film is on a clear day. You can see forever may's film is nuts it's not a description that's the actual title and we're having a ball going through barbara's filmography talking about all the different movies she's made talking about all the different choices she's made and talking about all the different ways she has decorated her nails throughout the decades go to patreon.com slash original cast pod be like mark be like philip become a patron of the original cast support the art that you love and gain access to our bonus monthly podcast the original cast at the movies all right, here's the show. Hello, beautiful people. Before we begin, I just want to give a quick disclaimer. The Three Penny Opera deals with uh, themes that some may find challenging and or inappropriate for younger listeners. And also we play some samples from the Donmer Warehouse 1994 cast recording, which does include swears. If none of these suit your current listening environment, please listen at a later time. If you're good, I'm good. So let's get on with the show. Whenever my world falls apart... I never lose hope or lose heart Whatever the form of the storm that may brew Not with you to lean on, darlings, you Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is the founding editor-in-chief of Backstage West and is the current editor-in-chief of American Theatre Magazine. It's Rob Weinert. Kent, everybody. Happy to be here. Hello, how are you, Rob? Thanks for having me on. It's I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Happy to have you here. You and I met on a at a theater criticism panel, mm-hmm. which was uh, which was a very very interesting discussion about modern theater criticism. <laughs> and I'm sure that will come up and all the pitfalls of modern theater criticism as we go forward. But first and mm. foremost, you're here to talk about the Three Penny Opera. Oh, the shark has pretty teeth, dear. He shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has Mackie fear, and he keeps it out of sight. You probably know this better than me. Is this the first off-Broadway show to get a cast album? I don't know, probably no, not. But it, no, it's not the. No. F- it is. It is the only off-Broadway show to win a Tony Award. Uh, yes, I know. You, <laughs> yes, I think people should bring that up regularly and say, if Lotta Lenny can win a Tony for opera I mean, performance, I mean, you how, know. How good do you have to... And first of all, this is this is like 1954. So this is... Yeah. Not, the Tonys have been going for, you know, less than a decade, but still, they're a going concern. And how good does your performance have to be for them to be like, screw it, you get one. <laughs> that's, that's all I know, I know. It's, it's a striking thing. I mean, it... I think we'll talk about how I think there was so much warm feeling and, and sort of, I don't want to cast it as a sympathy vote, but there was so much warm feeling about her husband had died in 1950. She was kind of carrying his torch forward mm-hmm. uh, with her, with her, with her second husband, actually George Davis, who's a really crucial part of the story. But, um, and I think there was also this interesting, which we'll talk about. I mean, she was not herself a victim of the Holocaust. They did flee in 1933 Nazi Germany. And I think right. there was this sort of, it was an interesting time, let's say, for for German expats 
and mm-hmm. exiles. And I think there was a lot of, and I think that that explained a lot of the surge of feeling toward this. I mean, it was a great production and she was amazing, but I feel like they, again, I don't, I think the way, you know how award shows go, there's often a, an emotional and political uh, uh, resonance to them. And I, again, I think that's totally apropos. And in that case, I think there was a real post cold war or mid cold war and post world war two feeling of like, this is amazing music that was like from behind the, behind the, well, behind the that to put the Iron Curtain, but from from Germany, from that from a right, lost from era, that period. yeah, yeah, lost a lost era. You know, they survived. They survived that uh, the, this this show and these these Kurt Vile and Lalania, but you know, a lot of people did. Anyway, I think that just that hangs over the show in a way. The, the, the sure. extent to which the the show is has this almost prophetic air about it. Um, it was nineteen twenty eight. It was it was not. Nazis weren't in power yet, but there was, it was a, and in fact, you look back and apparently things in 28 were, were going pretty well, finally, after a really bad period. And then, then of course they took another turn. Yeah, they took a <laughs> terrible turn. Yes. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. So. Yeah. Uh, yes. It, yeah. And you have to imagine a certain amount of her getting a Tony award for the performance, which is, you know, legendary is also a, a she as a vile surrogate as you said Stan, like, yes as, as his advocate giving it's it's a way to give it to him as well and and to yeah i think that's right the production and i just Which did quick, transfer it to broadway you know it did it did eventually get there it just won its tony before well, it got but, there. no it, it didn't when the, that production didn't transfer to broadway right that production didn't uh, transfer that's true yeah no they did, did play on broadway and right. uh, we could talk about those other productions but um yeah, it, it it really seemed to live best off Broadway, and and so mm-hmm. I I think it was actually the fifty six Tonys. They had this weird story where it was open for a number of months at the Theater de Lise, which is now the Lortel, right? And then it and then there was a, a previous thing had to go in, so they had to stay to move out for a year and then come back in fifty six, and then it ran for like six years. It was the longest running off Broadway right. show, maybe until. I don't know. I don't know what what follows it in in the record books, but it was it was a huge thing, and it was a huge. I, I mean, I think the next huge hit was the Fantastics. I think like for for that. That's of, right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, which which is also, I mean, and and Jer- Jerry Orbach connected to both productions. Uh, that's right. That's right. Um, uh, as so, it is a yes. I mean, the, but like that's auspicious company, you know, to be the Fantastics and Three Penny Opera. That's a pretty great. Oh, I know. You know, that's a pretty great couplet <laughs> right there. Um, Indeed, you could do those in rep. That'd be pretty interesting. Two wow, people that would be penny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the slightly different tones. Right. Yeah. yeah, a little bit. Orchestra little sizes bit. aren't right. Not a, not a lot of mm. costumes are wrong. Never mind. This is a terrible idea. Don't do that, yeah. guys. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. I take it back. It's 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 not great. Well, so but tell us though when when yeah. I started emailing you about doing the show, you you mm-hmm. mentioned vile sort of off off the 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 top as yeah. one of your 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 favorites. So how did Three Penny Opera come into your into your life? Well, it first came up actually I've been thinking about the past couple of days. I remember totally apocryphal part of this, and I it might be half remembering when I was a kid. And people would sometimes come to the door when I was lived in Phoenix, Arizona, and this guy came kind of a hippie, not really hippie, but young student type came to the door in when I this was the early 70s and was asking for money for her show and was promoting promote his show and i could swear he said it was called the three penny opera and my mm. mother said oh what's that he said well it's not really for kids but you should come see it and i that that stuck in my head that that title but that's mm-hmm. it was many years later i like a lot of folks of my generation gen xers were introduced to Kurt file by this amazing collection called 
Lost in the Stars. Mm. Not this, not the cast album of that show, but it was uh, Hal Wilner, a wonderful musical uh, compiler and and uh, tastemaker. He did a wonderful Disney collection called Stay Awake. He did some jazz collections. He's he was an amazing guy. He died a couple years ago tragically, but um, he had this amazing compilation of rock folks doing um, rock folks, uh, rock and pop artists, <laughs> often 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 with the edgy side to them. So. You know, the most famous recording, I think, might be the Tom Waits, uh, What Keeps Mankind Alive, which mm. if there's anybody who, who was born to be in a Brecht vile musical, yeah. Tom Waits. Yeah, absolutely. Mankind can keep alive thanks to its brilliance and keeping its humanity repressed. But there was also Dagmar Krause did an amazing sermon by Johnny, and Marion Faithful did what was sent to the soldier's wife. Uh, it was most famous for having a high-profile recording of Sting doing singing Mac the Knife and mm. uh, on there as the op- one of the openers, uh, and that I think led to that production uh, in '89 that was apparently terrible. I didn't see it. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, that, that, and that was, oh, there was the guy Stan Ridgeway from Wall of Voodoo did this amazing version, totally straight. There was nothing rock about it at all, except mm-hmm. the attitude of 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 the Canon song, which is mm-hmm. we'll talk about. Um, that kind of blew me away. So that was my introduction to to Deval. I thought this guy's amazing. I loved the, it was tuneful, but it was also had a harsh acidic edge to it. Um, and all these cool rock people were doing, and I, I didn't, I didn't know much about his music, but I spent many hours in, uh, in the going through the bins of Aaron's Records, used record store in L.A., and I remember I was there with, I'd always go with somebody, so we would maximize our chance of finding stuff. And I think it was my girlfriend who came up to me at the time, and she, she handed me, it's like you like this Kurt Val guy. There was this two record set, um, of the Three Penny Opera. It was Die Dreigroschen Oper, the it was a German recording from 1958, and we'll get to it in a second about how that happened. But it's a complete score. Anyway, it was a two-record set, and it was it's a it's a lot. I mean, I don't put on mm-hmm. two record two record sets of of operas, especially this weird sort of non-opera like right. edgy sounding. And I remember playing it over for some reason. I was attracted to it. I played it over and over, and it wasn't. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where. I'm not sure I like this, but I'm just, I just felt drawn to pull. Mm-hmm. And I finally, there was this one song, uh, the tango ballad was called in the, in the American version. I forget what it's called in the German, but it's the duet between Beckheath and Jenny. They're singing about their, their lives, uh, nostalgically, but obviously there's an edge to it, uh, mm-hmm. singing about their lives and him when he was her pimp and she was his worked for him, uh, and was supposedly in romance. Uh, it's a, I think it's the most seductive song in the show. It's just beautiful and heartbreaking and it ends with this hawaiian guitar slide solo i think i think it literally says in the score hawaiian guitar (laughs) 
that is literally the moment I'm like, what? I, I just, I'd heard it. I'd, I'd heard, I'd heard it. Obviously, but listen, that woke me up. And then I think right after that is the, not long after it's a jealousy duet, mm-hmm. which is, you know, that's not the most user friendly opening, like this parody of opera that has these women screeching at each other. Right. But it's also so funny when they get to the chorus, it's, it's a slow, beautiful chorus, but they're cursing each other. They're both, they're, they're the two, two, two women, Lucy and um, Polly are fighting over McKeith in, in jail. It, I mean, it's very trashy and hilarious. And I just think that's what finally did that. And then the ballad of the easy life was, was I think on the same side. So that there's like one mm. side of that, of that four, four, four sided uh, record set that I just like, I completely locked in and I finally got it. And this is all in German too. I think I used to play mm. this in college and people were like, what's that? Ironically, what's that Nazi music? I'm like, that's <laughs> yeah, right. way backwards, man. You're it's way like, off. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's German and German is, you know, famously not the, you know, or I think the trope, it's not, not a beautiful language to sing. And it, I mean, Breck stuff definitely leans into the, the sharp angles of the language. And uh, mm-hmm. anyway, that's what, that's what sold me on it. And then I think it was in the quest to, to, I don't think I saw a production of it until I was looking back. I think it's a company in LA called the noise within that did a production mm-hmm. in 1997 and it was quite good. They apparently did one a couple years ago. Uh, again, uh, I, I liked it. I mean, it was my first chance to see it on stage. And I think I started to collect soundtracks as well and, and ca- soundtracks of movies and cast mm-hmm. albums of shows. I want to keep those, those yes. clear um, yeah. as, as much as I can. And um, I'd seen, I had seen that famous poster of Raul Julia from the mm-hmm. 76 production. Right. And to, I mean, I've got issues with the translation there, and I but I've heard it was amazing, Richard Foreman's direction. And just that face with that bowler hat, that mm-hmm. is imprinted on my mind so much. Uh and so when I finally got to that that cast album, it was really quite an experience. That 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 one sounds great. I, I have huge issues with that that the translation of the, the Ralph Mannheim mm. John Willard. It just we'll get to I mean Mark the Mark Blistein translation, it was really an adaptation of that was the English language one. That was done in 1954. That one, you know, it's not cool to like that one, but I mean, that's the best. That's the best. That's it's just it, it really sings. It's funny. It actually, you know, works on its own terms. He did have to soften a lot of the language and a lot of the images. Uh, yeah, that's what he gets year. a lot of stick for. That I think that adaptation yeah. for for it being 54, and he has to kind of make it palatable to the commercial well, audience a little bit. You know, I couldn't I couldn't find in my reading enough details about this, but because I was reading Ken Mandelbaum piece from years ago, who's saying that mm-hmm. he claims that, and I, I this might be true that Blitzstein was asked to basically change the lyrics in the studio. He's like mm-hmm. having to come up having to come up with vocalizations there. I think he also did soften some of the language in, in the actual show, but I, I, I have, I feel like I read years ago and I can't find that. I can't find the source for it. Is that on stage, a lot of that stuff was still in there. A lot of, it's not even just like profanity or, or explicit sexual language, but there are in, in that tango ballad that I talked about, there's a, in the original one, there's an abortion. She has a baby and they talk about, they talk about flushing it down the sewer. It's, it's, it's terrible. And they just, and of course that's, singing to this lilting music. I don't think that was <laughs> on yeah. stage in the fifties, but I think they, there is a lyric where they refer to, I was pregnant. We changed our position on the bed, which is fairly explicit for the fifties and it didn't work out. It went away. I'm not a family man anyway. So they don't talk about what happened, 
Um, right. But, you know, the ballad of sexual dependency is, pr- you, don't, you don't need it to be any more explicit than that. We can get to, I think the only other translation I think is as good as the Blitzstein and in some ways better and is just, I delighted by it is the Jeremy Sam's translation mm-hmm. from 94. He's the Donmar Warehouse production. I think it's the translation Matthew Gardner used uh, at the signature about at 10 years ago, mm-hmm. looking at the reviews. What's amazing about that is he uses the Cockney slang. And so a lot of it doesn't translate literally to us. Like there's some reference, like the Canon song is now the Squatty song, which Squatties means like grunt, you know, like mm-hmm. an army grunt. But the bitter acid tone of that one is, and the profanity is extreme in that one. There's every, every, you know, at every opportunity in the, in the, in the wedding song where they sort of on the, in the fifties version, they have this terrible wedding, you know, they're, they're commemorating this basically shotgun wedding between Polly and McKeith mm-hmm. and they convey their, they convey their, their, you know, anti marriage, you know, just like their, their cynicism about it with it's like, uh, yay, hurrah. happy couple yay hooray as they watched the registrar write it down he wondered who paid for her wedding gown and she tried to think what was his last name yay hooray but in the in the english one <laughs> in the jeremy sounds one they're like as they stood there before the registrar she thought I don't know who the fuck you are And the groom was too pissed to notice anyway Hooray! Do you know your wife's profession? What? What of evil and transgression? What? Who fucking ray? At every opportunity he puts in profanity and, and, and amps up the... The canon song is much more openly racist, but it really sings and it's funny and really sad and apparently Philida Lloyd directed the original production and set it in a future London uh, at the coronation of William V which I guess is hmm. I don't know if that's going to happen not too far away anyway. theoretically right yeah <laughs> yeah exactly exactly <laughs> so, yeah we'll see if anyway. the monarchy survives right <laughs> yeah exactly exactly but um, anyway I, I, I know I've arranged further that so my introduction was and so this among the collections I got on a cassette, I got this 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 uh, off Broadway version, um, you know, the one that everyone knows. And I think mm-hmm. I took it for granted. I think I really took it for granted because it 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 the sound of it. If you've heard, you know, it's very tightly mic'd and there's no room or reverb in it. It sounds like it's recorded in a tiny room, dead room, and yeah. everyone's really close to the mic. And it really, I mean, it kind of gives you a feeling like being in a, that in that theater must have been amazing. It just must mm-hmm. you must have felt felt the the sweat smelled the smelled the costumes in that theater it just and even the pictures make it look that way too um so it, it's really immediate but i think the performances there's so much in, in in that one that set the tone for kurt vile performance for better and worse mostly better i mean can't argue with a lot of lenny's performance scott merrill is a very sort of dashing rakish mckeith mm-hmm. which is i think sets a tone for that's why Sting played him, and that's how Alan Cumming played him a little bit that way. Although there was a lot else going on in his performance too, um, 
but the idea that he's a sort of ladies man he's very handsome that's that's i mean the original guy looked more raul julia i think splits the difference the best he's very handsome and seductive but he also looks like a bourgeois yeah. The point Brecht's Brecht's point, of course, is gets tiresome to talk about Brecht's what Brecht <laughs> intended, but but you know was was that you know what people don't know about crooks is that they're all bourgeois as well. They're just businessmen, mm-hmm. and they're just right. and that's his point also about businessmen is that they're bandits too. So um, it's hard to strike the right balance. You, you don't want to have Mahita as a, a you know a, a total like uh, you know fuddy duddy you know boring guy he, he's also a killer and well yeah he's free- a bad guy i mean i think we yeah. should yeah yeah <laughs> if you know one song from three penny opera you know mac the knife you know mac the knife yeah and you know from that song that he's not a great guy <laughs> yeah yeah and i th- i think that, that i mean that that's a that that version that again in, in the original there's there's a, a a fire where orphans die uh mm-hmm. there's and and the ending is clearly not just about the list of women, like in the famous version, like the, like get in line because Mackie's in town, ladies. Mm-hmm. It's more there's a schoolgirl who is raped and has a child, and it's Mackie's fault. Like it's much it's much darker in the original. Um, but again, I I I don't want to say that it was it's it's better. The Blitzstein version is really it's got it's got most of the the content you really need. You don't have to rub people's face in the in the grit too much. Again, the only reason I like the Jeremy Sam's one is because again the Cockney somehow makes it even more accurate and he his stuff really sings i think that's the problem with the the manheim willa translation with a few exceptions just doesn't sing very well it just Mm. it's not set very well it's it there's some fun ideas but they just don't there's nothing quite as good as uh you know about in the the sexual dependency ballad about the about how men uh you know have these high ideals or but they just want to get laid (laughs) Mm-hmm. at the end of the day and you can trick them you can always you always can get the best of them if you just remember that he's got that great thing where he's the double meaning of he's lying mm-hmm. you know is the, is the chorus of that it's like at the end of the day what's he doing he's lying so he's lying but and that kind of stuff is just eludes the the menheim willa translation the only the only thing is i really the only song i really prefer in there is just the what keeps mankind alive but i think this might just mm-hmm. because i heard it first from tom waits and mm-hmm. that is one where you know, that's one of the two couple finales of the acts. There's the one about life is mean or the world is mean. The world is mean. It just, it just Peachum and his family come out and tell us everything's bad. <laughs> and, and what keeps man kind of alive is just like, we all just eat each other. And that's, that's how life is. There, there's awful sermons, anti, anti-social sermons that, that are set to this cheery or, or forbidding chorale music. Um, uh, and I think that's one where you can really grind people. I mean, again, not to harp on the Jeremy Sam's version, but in that one, he literally he translates part of it as "life's a bitch and then you die." Which you know, mm-hmm. if you're going to steal, if you're going to temporize, right, Brett, right, and steal yeah. from a like a, a slogan, that's a, a pretty deft version. Of it. I mean, it, it is. I, I, there's, there's because it, it's an in, interesting piece of of theater history. And oh yeah, it's that fascinating thing. I, I think about something that is. I mean, it's based on the German, the original German version, based on the Beggar's Opera. Yeah, and so, but it's that funny thing that I, I, I think I knew this, but I didn't really realize it fully until I prepared to talk to you about it. That it's, you know, it's a German opera uh, written in German, but based on something set in England, based on something written in English that is then yes. translated back into English, 
you know this this new adaptation obviously for the american audience and that is such a you know game of telephone way to get down there that you've got something that was written as a parody of italian opera adapted into to be a commentary on like german society in in the 30s then sliding into america in the 50s that's absolutely true it's there's so much there's so many layers upon layers of reference points that of course a translator is going to really have to work to be like well like this doesn't work like i I know why this is here but like you're you're calling back something three versions ago we can't like right you have to know a lot of cultural information to get this joke I I think I I think actually I was going to say that I, I think the one reason that the Jeremy Sam's version feels like a homecoming is because of that English background. The character names are McKeith and Polly Peachum and the Queen's coronation, so it is literally set in some version of England. Um, what's you know, and it but it has been it's been so wildly adapted. Even Rec took the took his assistant Elizabeth Hauptman's translation of the Beggar's Opera, and just sat with Vile and, and like they say they rearranged it and I mean. Whatever you say about the whole contested issue of Brecht, like stealing other people's ideas and not giving credit, mm-hmm. he was a great dramatist. He knew what worked. He was a great man of the theater, really. He just like yeah. moved move stuff around. And sometimes he moved stuff around to make a point that was it's annoying, whatever. But he he really knew how to just like tighten the drama and up the stakes, all those those cliches. Um, and so yeah, it it it's got all this cultural that weird cultural baggage of of it comes from this. But I think the fact that it was a parody of an opera. Is really a part of the, I mean, the, I think when you listen to it, you might know the great hits, but you listen to it, it's a lot of, there's a lot of classical music parody on this, basically on this record, you know, the overture. And I think it's easy to sort of, you know, I don't know if people like put that on, you know, it's not really banging tunes, but I, I, I think that that's key to the, to the whole, um, to the way that, to the way it works. Cause there are some songs that are just like standalone little vaudeville show tune shuffle numbers like a useless song or or a song like the solomon song which is basically just i think breck just repurposed that from another show and just stuck it in there, a little preaching mm-hmm. preaching number almost like reading of the psalms and a cautionary tale but um and i think that was done in one in front of the curtain i think that's because you can come out with a harmonium and you can play that by itself anyway uh the fact that the show is this piece of like modular furniture that people were moving around i mean there's no better example of that than than then the cast album in which Lucy, the character played by B. Arthur, gets the Barbara song. And I I think there's a lot of reasons dramaturgically and probably contractually why Lucy almost never gets that song anymore. Like Lucy is this, she's like the third, literally the third wheel in Mac in the MacHeath sort of is quadrangle between Polly, this young ingenue which he's which he's he's married hastily, uh and Jenny, his old lover, who's a who's a prostitute, sex worker, and Lucy, who turns up pregnant, who's the who's his pal, the the the, the sheriff's daughter, basically. And um, uh, it makes so much sense. To, I, again, I'd have to look back at the script and study it more. It makes so much sense to give her a song because she has no other song other than the jealousy duet. Give Lucy the song about how basically she was deflowered by McKeith. Um, Mm-hmm. And B. Arthur just, I mean, I think they probably oh, take yeah, it down a few, a, a few, a few keys for her, but it's, it's just perfect, her, her rendition. So you let a man just walk right over you who said 
is what you are Such a wonderful lot of terrible things Did happen And now it's you can tell me Sorry but it's usually Polly. So the version that uh, that's done now, Polly gets. So Polly gets that. She also gets the all those love songs with McKeith, and she's she sort of is the Andre. And she gets in the original. She also got Pirate Jenny. Confusingly, makes yeah. really no sense. It makes and and you know the way it worked in the script was they're at the wedding. They say sing us a song, and she gets up and sings this bitter song about this this pirate waitress who's going to kill all of the people who, you know, get revenge on all the people who've wronged her. I mean, it's a jarring effect, but it just makes much more sense for the, for the, for Jenny to sing it. Jenny, the, yeah, the, you know, the whore has been walked over by everybody, including McKeith, you know? Well, so, it also foreshadows her betrayal later to a certain extent that like, she's going exactly. to betray McKeith and right. Well, because no. she's going to be put into a terrible position. And so like pirate Jenny, she's going to, you know, figure it out. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, but so th- that, that's always assigned to Jenny, almost always assigned to Jenny now. But mm-hmm. the, I think the Barbara, again, these, all these names are weird. The Barbara song. Why is it called that? I don't remember. But anyway, it's the one about, about not saying no or say be, being playing coy with men. And then the one who actually, you know, I, I, that song just uh, blows me away and it's not one I play a lot because it's 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 a dramatic song and I don't you know I need to really listen to it to get it but I think the the main takeaway I've, is it's it's a very fun show there's a lot of humor in it a lot of the tunes are really banging they're really just fun to listen to but the thing that comes through is just this this sharp painful tone that the, the songs capture, even when they're being funny and ironic, they really, they really stick. They really get under the skin. And I think Barbara's song really sticks under the sticks. You know, it really, yeah, mm-hmm. that one, when you really listen to what's going on in there, it, it's very witty. Uh, it's, it's probably a little too cute the way Blitzstein called, you know, uses the perpendicular, but it's one way of saying being horizontal, like not saying horizontal, the horizontal rumba or whatever you know it's right <laughs> and it did it, it does express the, the character sort of circumlocutions like yeah this is how she would say it uh there's other versions that are that are they're fine the other translations but that one yeah it can't be divorced from b arthur's amazing performance i don't did i mean sure. you probably know she she went on to do a lot of other not a lot she oh yeah cabarets and and, and music you know? Oh, yeah. She was, I mean, she's a, you know, I, I think most famously, you know, it, it's about 10 years away, but she does MAME, obviously, with Angela right. Lansbury and, and that. And there right. are shades, I, I, I found it, I mean, she's one of those performers where her voice is so distinctive that I'm listening to her sing Jealousy Duet. You thought you could make a big impression on my Mackie. Didn't I, didn't I? Guess you never met his old friend Jackie. Didn't I, didn't I? Well, you kind of make me laugh. Who would want a stupid cat? Who would want one stupid cat? Oh, now there's a like for you, so Mackie needn't beg for you. Well, you better ask him. Yes, you better ask him. You better ask him. You better ask him. Ha, 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 ha. And every time I listen yeah. to it, Rob, in the back of my head, I'm hearing... 
always be for somebody's because it's ostensibly <laughs> the same song and right that's true and it, it is but it's just so funny to think that like to draw a line that people wouldn't necessarily draw from Kurt Vile to Jerry Herman. And it's a very clean, <laughs> it's a very clean line. And I don't know that I would yeah, have made yeah. that connection without it being B. Arthur singing it. You yeah, know, like yeah, yeah. I might have eventually, but like it, it it's just the fact that it's it's B. Arthur's voice. And it's like, oh, this is this is exactly like that. Which is one of the things that struck me. I don't know the last time I listened to this top to bottom. You know, yeah, I've heard yeah. so- selections from it, obviously, and I, I, there's a lot of songs. I mean, everyone, you probably know Pirate Jenny. I love yeah. Army Song. I, I love. There's yeah, a yeah. lot of great, great tunes in this. Obviously, as you as you were saying, but I was really struck by what a kind of, you know, it, it must have been so familiar to the American audience in the '50s because simultaneously with this coming across the pond is there is a resurgence of um, Gilbert and Sullivan happening throughout the country. Okay. All the, the, the doily cart opera companies putting out cat like albums left and right as hmm. the LP has come in, they are really starting to like churn out their, the complete recorded set of, okay. of Gilbert and Sullivan. And so there is this sort of low level resurgence of Gilbert and Sullivan happening at the same time. And this is great Gilbert and Sullivan parody. I mean, it is wow. absolutely yeah, I didn't think about that angle. Format wise, it is so perfectly, <laughs> you know, it's these very stereotypical people who come out with excellent elocution and sing mm-hmm. songs about what they think and who they are. And they're funny and they're erudite and it's fun, but it's got that great, you know, like you say, what? Vile's working in in minor keys and minor modulations yeah. and mm-hmm. Brecht is doing his thing all over it and it just it feels so familiar and yet yeah. so twisted and I think that yeah American audiences would have just eaten this up like wholeheartedly that's right that. I never thought about yeah. that. I, I, that I never thought about how they, they would they would because it must have been strange also on some level too and exotic but that that they would key into the parody element like that mm. I think what yeah. you're the other thing that I thought of when you were talking just now is this is I mean, I think it's not, it's maybe, I think that their opera they did that they were working on before and after this, the Mahagoni is maybe their, their best work together. But mm-hmm. I would say this is the most total fusion of them. They feel really fused. I feel like that, mm-hmm. I was just reading today, the book called The Partnership, Pamela Katz, about how they work together. And they really, they did split eventually because their egos were just, and they're, I think what's interesting is Vile was really interested in being an opera composer at first and he did write a great opera mahogany after this and with brecht but by that time brecht was like not he he didn't like being in the opera house because it's the opera house is the composer's domain mm-hmm. but in the theater it was brecht's domain i think i read in this book that Viola she took a deal of 25 percent of royalties and brecht 65 or something like that and i forget who got the red like Jeez. and i think it was just an acknowledgement that he said i like i'm in i'm in your domain Bert, you know, uh, mm-hmm. we're doing we're, just, we're doing theater here, and I think he really responded to the rhythmic quality of of Breck's work, and just the, mm-hmm. the, the, there was music in his poetry, and that just when I think of we we go over Sullivan, I'm thinking of the way that those lyrics sit on those 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 melodies, and the way they just seem fused, like the Gilbert Sullivan is like mm-hmm. a fusion. In this case, Breck and Vile is the same way. You listen to that, just that whole amazing bravura like it's not an 11 o'clock number i guess but the call from the grave where mckeith is just mm-hmm. both ple- pleading with his tormentors and cursing them out it's not a patter song really it's 
but it's at the speed of a patter song. It's like this crazy art. And I just can't imagine either of those elements working without both of them. They're, they're like one. And luscious girls who flaunt their treasure before the eyes of easy yokels and other men who wait at leisure to watch and snatch their simple shekels. The crooks, the malls, the flash house owners, the shills by day and sharks by night. And yes, those dogs in uniform. May I be guiltless in their sight. You know, mm-hmm. Kendra and Ebbett, they're at their best. All, the, the best teams, um, it feels like one one voice. They're singing, like singing, or, or it comes through as one voice. And, you know, there's other... There's other things where Brecht is stronger and Viol is stronger, but this is, I think, the two of them, you know, and, and doing a piece for the theater too. And it's not, it's not the opera house. I mean, it's called, mm-hmm. it's a parody of an opera. It's not a, it's not an opera, um, but it's got it's all that so, opera sound, sounding it, stuff. <laughs> yeah, it has what has opera yeah. sensibilities about it. I mean, yeah, what, right, what, which right. I don't know if you call it ballad opera or light opera, whatever that that sort of, but like that proto musical thing that was going on. Uh, you know, for a very long time, and it it has such a it has such grand sensibilities to it, yeah. Yeah. without being pretentious. That's the thing that you really can't like. That I, I can't really figure out how they pull it off, and I think it's because I think you you hit on it. It's that idea that I mean, I think it was billed originally as a play with music. It's it's yeah. so like so it is really it's Brecht's thing and yeah. and vile put music on it and i think the fact that like you say if the royalty split was that way if he was acknowledging that this was was breck's thing that um he, he probably felt very free just to be like i'll just do whatever yeah. i want because it doesn't really make yeah. any difference like it's not my yeah. thing it's his thing if as long as he likes it it's fine and so you end up with compositions that are fascinating <laughs> to listen to because yeah. yeah. he's just letting it all go he's just like whatever yeah and, you know there's e- there's even a there's even an element of sort of commercial like they follow this up with another like a sort of you know happy end which is sort of like three penny two right mm-hmm. which is an amazing score it's just such a great score but it's not a much of a show and it's been Michael Feingold did a great job of sort of piecing together a version of it that I, I find it delight and because in some ways the score that score is even I'm not gonna say better I'm not gonna do a ranking but there's stuff sure. in that score that reaches a height that just I you know they were clearly. Mm-hmm doing they, they 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 hit some sort of alchemy they got some more gold out of out of that mine but um it it is it's almost like he he's he's file recognized i'm in the commercial theater i'm writing for actor singers and not opera singers mm-hmm. and you know interestingly for his wife who is it's such an interesting thing about vile is that he later claimed or it, people attributed the claim to him that he always heard his voice when he was writing her heard her voice in his mind when he was mm-hmm. writing right. which is I credit the sort of emotional truth of that, but when you listen to his, he obviously was an ambitious composer who wanted to write grand, you know, to a certain extent, grand opera in the tradition of Mozart and and, and Puccini. And like, I, I, I think he was sort of basically torn, but it's true that I think he felt liberated by this, by this. It was, it had to be done very quickly. Mm -hmm. He and Brecht and he and Brecht and their wives went to some retreat in the South of France and sat on the beach and, and just mapped out how they were going to do this. And I think, you know, he put some tangos and some foxtrot type stuff in his music before this, but he'd never written for it. Like a, it was supposed to play by a jazz band. 
And he yeah. wrote, it's it's not strictly jazz. I mean, people can argue about whether it's, but he clearly, there's the banjo plunking away. I, you know, that stuff is just, that's just, I'm so at home with that sound of just like, this is a show, this is show music, but it's a, it's, by a composer who can, who can, I don't know. He's not slumming. I, he's not slumming. I don't well, know. It, it's the like thing of, I, 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 you have for the first time, a sin, not the first time. I, I should never, I'm, every time I make an assertion like that, I'm, I'm told I'm wrong. <laughs> There's so I'm no first time. Right. But you have an early <laughs> example in the thirties of what is the formation of what will become popular musical theater, where it is right. classical sensibility, meaning right. the songs are structured like a song. But you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge—that's yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. section. But he's working with very, very contemporary um, sensibilities. So it is, mm. you know, he's working in contemporary rhythms. He's working in like what? What do you when you go to the clubs or you go to the bars? You hear this, and now yes, when you come yes. to the theater, you hear that as well. It's just I've mm-hmm. restructured it in this format that you completely understand, and that's essentially what music theater is. It is a you know, we're we're working in orchestra music, which is typically yeah. we we would think of as classical, but it is yeah. contemporary strong song structures, and we're trying to get as much you know rhythm and feeling out of it as is humanly possible. And it's that blending of of sort of you know what was you know for a long time in the forties, fifties, and early sixties in America, literally popular music. It was the popular music of the day until rock and roll came in. So it is. Like this, this is one of those flashpoints to me of moment of like, oh, that's if you want to look at the birth of music theater in the world, mm-hmm. you can't discount what Vial and Brecht are doing at all. They are really they're bringing it home. And it's that's right. It's fascinating. Yeah. To find it. it it's interesting. I, I never thought about the parallel between between again, this operator thing is really the revelation here is American musical theater kind of having this relationship to operetta, but then breaking away from that mm-hmm. and, and having to more authentic you know gritty pop sound in it and more rhythm and just i feel like this is like a, on a like brother from another mother this is a parallel <laughs> that was happening at the same time mm-hmm. right and yeah. it, I, you know again in an unavoidably i gotta say i think this is colored by what happened in the war what happened in germany right right it inevitably colored in a darker tone um which i think you know it's not more authentic but it has this darker tone i think one of the mistakes that people make when they approach the work or you know stage it is that they try to think of it as a, a traditional american musical it's, i mean it didn't come from those roots it's right. not it almost it's you know it was been around for so long in the version that came to us in the 50s it really has created its own influence on the american musical form but it's not the same it doesn't come from right rogers hammerstein or the cole porter it does not come from that from that same and you know then vile had a very interesting career uh, I'm not going to make the invidious comparison of like it's better or worse. Very interesting. And I think in many ways, amazing career as a Broadway composer. I would love to have seen if he hadn't died at age 50, uh, mm-hmm. what he would have done after that. But, um, you know, it's a, dis- yeah, it, it, it's, it's a distinct, distinct sort of mongrel creation that, but again, it, it, I think what we respond to is what you're talking about. It's, it's, it's not just a classical work from germany of that era and it's not just a, a work of popular theater that's just like you know i don't even know i don't think there are any examples that i that are part of the repertoire yeah. that are yeah. like german pop 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 theater um <laughs> whatever that would be this is some this is some amazing hybrid 
I think, you know, it's interesting. I was going to mention the production that led to the one at the Theater de Lise with Mark Blitzstein was, I'm sure you know this, it was at, at Brandeis University. Leonard yeah. Bernstein had, yeah. had a residency there. And among the many things he programmed was a, a, a pretty quickly rehearsed reading of this. And you can find this audio online. It's very bad quality audio. But the, perform the quality of the performance, except for a lot of flubs, is amazing. His, uh, and it clearly Bernstein was one of those people who was looking both in the concert hall and in theater and was trying to cross-pollinate them and, and do, do new forms. Uh, and what's it, Blitzstein set that version in the five points uh, in New York, mm. uh, which is... All Such right. a funny, it, that's obviously an attractive <laughs> place for, to do storytelling, right? <laughs> right. Oh, sure. <laughs> um, and you can hear his narration talking about different places in New York. He's still got the, he's still got Mahith, but I can't remember what, the, how, what they do with the coronation. But anyway, that's what people heard those. And what's, what's amazing about the recording, you can hear people responding in real time to Lenya and going, whoa, what is this? Mm. And and you can hear laughter throughout at the, at the songs. And it's just, people are just. You could hear people eat it up. This is 1952, I think, and then and then that's what led to the production off Broadway. Mm. So there was a there was a. I think you're right about audiences getting the sort of. It's the same audiences who would enjoy, you know, later enjoy Nichols and May. They're like, you know, they get what they're parodying. They appreciate it, and they also love the fact that there's this other angle to it. You know, um, and it comes. It comes. I mean, it really. It, it, I can't. Oh, I, I might. It, Dear listener, you may feel I'm banging on about this, but I'm doing it for a reason. Like it, it, it is such a, it's such a, a perfect show for the time. Off Broadway is just becoming a thing, and <laughs> it is you know, it, it so we you, you have it, it's so like when you said like the Nichols and May crowd, it is very like bohemian, beatnik, and it's <laughs> telling to me also that. After this comes out and and Vile and, and Brecht become become popular, the people who pick up the songs and start recording them are Bobby Darren and The yeah. Doors. Like it is picked yeah. up by contemporary popular musicians of the time and like yeah. avant-garde rock. It is it is yeah. so and these are songs from the 30s, you know. <laughs> like yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it, for a group of people whose motto is, you know, don't trust anybody over 30, like these songs yeah, are, right. are certainly over 30 years old. <laughs> and and they feel very contemporary. And that's why they they work in those those sort of settings. And I, I think it's it's one of those very rare and fascinating moments where the piece came to, you know, it comes to, I mean, it had come to America before, I think with the film, I think the, the film version came in the thirties and was well, actually, it, no, that, yeah. Okay. I don't want to, well, actually, but I don't, there was, no, actually, there was, no, there was a staging in 33 on Broadway that ran for a couple weeks and right. No it was just what, it, what they were looking at. It was just, yeah. I don't know who the translation was by. It was, it was, it did not really come here. It was, yeah. barely made it yeah and you can see why i mean if you look at what's going on in the 30s in new york like this is that's not right. that this is not it that's feels right. that's so right. 50s to me it just feels that way and it's so funny that's that right. it's 20 years old at that point it just feels very 50s america to me the score it's so you interesting. Know what's interesting is i i feel like it almost again it wasn't ahead of its time i think for germany it was the it was these it was a right. huge hit but for the U.S., it's right. I, what's interesting to me is I wanted to come back to the recording that that sent me, and I really can't recommend this recording highly enough. Again, it's the full score mm. in in order, blah blah blah. It's all in German, 
But that 58 recording, the story of how that came to be, I mean, that was, Lenya had not been back to Berlin since 33, since she and her husband fled. And they fled separately. They were, they were kind of apart. Their marriage was kind of, you know, mm-hmm. a marriage of convenience at that point. They did reunite in the U.S. and were very happy here, apparently. Uh, but that was a traumatic time. And she, she so she went back in 55 with her second husband and started making some recordings of his songs. And she became like the Yoko Ono, like the the, the keeper of the, mm-hmm. the flame, of her, of her late husband's flame. And, um, but there was a lot of, you know, she, she, she was first told you can record here, but these records won't be released here. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a real rapprochement that had to happen, like the diplomatic solution to, and also they made the decision, we're going to record the full score of Three Penny Opera in German for the first time. Lenny is going to be in it. And it's going to be done in Berlin. And just the, 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 the logistics of pulling that off in 1958. I mean, I think Brecht had just died. I don't think he was, was going to say, died. yeah. Or he was, uh, I should know my dates, but it might be 59. It's politically, I mean, it is a very politically complicated show in Germany at that point. Yes. With, with Brecht being in East Germany and, you know, obviously Lottie's coming back to, to West Berlin. And it, it's a yes. very like, where where does where does Weil and Brecht fit in the sort of modern German communist, you know, Western philosophy? It's very, very complicated. And yeah. the show has some you know marxist overtones that kind of got thrust on it seems like from my research later by um yes Rex, uh, because uh, he wasn't he wasn't it, yes. it's, it's not an orthodox marxist show it's very cynical about capitalism but it certainly doesn't it's not about the solidarity of right the there's no yeah there's no it's, workers of the world unite in this show <laughs> this is quite the opposite actually basically <laughs> like, everyone's at each other's throats and that's how it is you know and that's um, how it is right <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, so like you said, life's a bitch and then you die. Like that's exactly. basically the Yeah. <laughs> I, I have to ask, Rob, before we, we kind of wrap up here. Yeah. Uh, what is your favorite song in this? Let, let's stick to the 54 recording. What is your favorite song on that on this particular recording? I'm going to have to go with a tango ballad because. Oh, OK. I mean, I've talked about how much the Barbara song, I think, is a just an amazing high point of the show and of the, of the and the ballad of the easy life was, was, was uh, always a favorite. And that's one that uh, on, on the German recording, just the tempo of it just really wrapped me up in the, and so I, I do like the, the, the English one too, but the tango ballad, I think has, it's the kind of the perfect, because it's got Lenya, it's got Scott Merrill, it's got the sort of American rake and Lenya's just, just, you know, authentic germanness it doesn't have some of the harsher lyrics but it's got it's got plenty um uh of dysfunction in there and it's just there's something about that in that one the the slide guitar sounds more like a slide guitar than a hawaiian guitar to be mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. there's something about the way that that again it's it's a minor key that sort of opens up to, into this sort of rapturous tango that's again it's you know it's i i think a lot of composers and artists try to pull off this sort of irony of sweet music accompanying terrible things you know Mm -hmm. um and i just don't think anybody did it better than because i think again it's like the way brecht and viol are fused i think those two are fused so much in the viol in the brecht viol music that they're inseparable it's not like one's commenting on the other they're kind of the pain and the sort of seduction is all in there it's just like if that if pain and seduction has a sound it's 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 that it's that sound of that tango ballad so that would be my 
Mm-hmm. But I mean, Pyrogen is, you know, that's just... Oh, sure. I mean, that's, that's seminal. Then you gentlemen can wipe off that lie from your face. Every building in town is a flat one. Your whole stinking place will be down to the ground. Only this cheap hotel standing up safe and sound. And you yell, why do they spare that one? And you say, why do they spare that one? All the night through with the noise and to do You wonder who's the person lives up there Then you see me stepping out into the morning Looking nice With a ribbon in my hair And the ship, the black freighter Runs the flag up its masthead And the cheering's there Rob, this was so great. We we covered so much with Three Penny Opera. We didn't talk hardly at all about American Theater Magazine or your work with oh, the BMI no. composer Shook. Any of this. So we'll have to have you back so you can cover all the other stuff that you're involved in. This is so wonderful. But tell people where they can find you on the internet. Well, I'm at americantheater.org as the editor, and I'm at Rob Kent, K-E-N-D-T on Twitter. I think I, I, have a, I have a music blog called Train My Ear, but you can find that through my uh, Twitter just as easily as anything. So I've written about... Kurt Vile and there and you know about Sondheim and other other folks so yeah I think I highly recommend folks check it out it's a lot of fun there was a time and now it's all gone by when we two lived together she and I the way we were was just the way to be I cared for her and she took care of me and that arrangement seemed to work perfectly the milkman rang the bell I got out of bed I opened up her purse paid him what he said I'd have a glass of milk back in bed I'd climb You understand she was out working all this time And so we lived, me and my little mouse In that snug two-by-four where we kept house The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. Please rate and review the original cast on your podcatcher of choice. It's the easiest way to help other listeners find the show. Go to bit.ly slash originalcaststore for original cast merchandise like t-shirts, tote bags, and more. Become a patron of the original cast at patreon.com slash originalcastpod so you can listen to our bonus podcast, The Original Cast at the Movies. On the socials, we're at originalcastpod. Special thanks to our social media manager, Bethany Zalecki. Hi, Bethany. My thanks to Rob Weiner-Ken for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn. And I can't. I have rehearsal. So then I had my fiddle, swore I wouldn't stir. It looked like soon I might be taking care of her. You'd think a woman had a right to have one gripe. You left me flat. Well, I just ain't the working type. We locked the door and each commenced to Goodbye, sweet two by four that we called home.